Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Guinos Hermes, a deep bow to Sophia as always. I have been reading a delightful and delicious book. Here it is, The Mind of a Bee. You may have heard me say before that we have keystone species in our external ecology, species that just have a kind of decisive importance in the ecologies they inhabit. And similarly, we have keystone species in the soul, species that have a symbolic, spiritual, and maybe even evolutionary significance for us as human beings that is decisive. And so while earthworms are marvelous and delightful, they just don't have the same place in the soul as the butterfly or the bee. And this book is so interesting, so exciting to read that I just really wanted to have the author, Lars Chitka, join us, my friends, and he agreed. I'm really thrilled. Lars Chitka is the author of this beautiful book and professor of sensory and behavioral ecology at Queen Mary College at the University of London. He is also the founder of the Research Center for Psychology at Queen Mary. He is known for his work on the evolution of sensory systems and cognition using insect-flower interactions as a model system. Chitka has made fundamental contributions to our understanding of animal cognition and its impact on evolutionary fitness, studying bumblebees and honeybees. And this book is just really, it feels like a labor of love that comes from a lifetime of learning and dedication. Lars Chitka, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, my friend. Thank you very much for your kind words and the introduction. Yeah, thank you. I I often say, you know, that human beings have lost a sense of the mindedness that's all around us, that we exist in a way embedded in mind. And as a scientist, it seems you initially felt a certain degree of skepticism about our capacity to verify the presence of consciousness in bees. But you have in some sense become rather convinced, right? I mean, you know, you're still a good, tentative, careful scientist, but... It's kind of like the evidence got to you. Yes, I mean, there's an interesting history in how we scientists view animal behavior. Um, and I think it seems that some way about a century ago, animals lost their minds. And that around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, people were quite ready to accept that animals have consciousness, that they have minds, emotional states, and so on, including insects, and discussed quite um, visionary ideas at the time. But um, early in the 20th century, scientists almost didn't just give up on the field, but actually denied the possibility that anything other than the human has a mind. And that's changed over the last few decades. First in well, perhaps the, the more obvious species like, such as great apes and corvid birds and dolphins and so on, but gradually also in the things that I study, that is the insects, the bees, where we've accumulated more and more evidence that indeed they are not just mindless robots, but are thinking and feeling creatures, and there's ever more evidence in favor of that idea accumulating. 
Yeah, there's a way in which human beings almost kind of lost their minds during that period, and that studying the mind of humans in a, in a way was a bit taboo. Consciousness was, was like a thing that we couldn't touch too carefully. The, the sort of behaviorist revolution sort of shifted our view of even of our own minds and how we could understand them. And so maybe that kind of those two things went together, but then there is this anthropocentrism that was set in for some people, that there was all this resistance, for instance, to Jane Goodall saying, well, I'm sorry, there's another being out there who uses tools. And, and well, and then there was resistance, well, but they don't make them. Well, I'm sorry, I've seen them make the tools. And so there's just been this kind of difficulty in really getting our minds around what Darwin presented and almost returning to what, as you say, it's not just um, that a that hundred years ago, maybe it was okay, but going back thousands of years, there's maybe a deep sense of our kinship with these beings rather than our superiority to them. Indeed. So I think um, if you explore deeper and deeper into the science, the history of the scientific literature, it's very humbling and very enlightening to see how many of the ideas that we today view as very progressive have actually been expressed before. And that includes a kind of scientific understanding of animal minds, but also the reverence for um, previous generations in many cultures, specifically for um, the sort of magic, the... the um, the, the appreciation of bees as almost um, um, alternative civilizations and so on, that I think is a view that we have largely forgotten in the 20th century, but are, are, are slowly regaining, I think, rather than inventing from scratch. Yeah, I, I mean, it's one of the things that you touch on is this deep interwovenness of the human mind and the bee mind that in a sense, there might be a, a, a subtle yet profound evolutionary history. In addition, you have this kind of cultural history where early cave art, maybe not going back to Lascaux, but you know, 8,000 years ago, we have cave art depicting people interacting with hives. And then that luminance that was related to our learning, right, through the candles and this symbolism and, and how they've been in our myths and our fables and our metaphors, can you talk about, because there's, there has been this discussion, right? There are a few different lines of thinking about how did we make a big leap, maybe going back about two million years or so. One view is Richard Rangham said, well, we started cooking much earlier than you would have thought, maybe a million and a half years ago, maybe more. A newer theory is, well, fermentation. But, but the question there is, in both cases, is how do we account for getting the extra caloric intake to, to feed this thing? But you propose it might be the bee is related in some way. Can you elaborate that a little? Yeah, I mean, I have to um, say that that's not my own theory. It's a theory developed by various anthropologists. And of course, it's just one of many ingredients, perhaps, mm -hmm. in the evolution of our intelligence. And, and it's, a, it's a beautiful theory. Um, so the idea is that you do not just in human prehistory observe that in many parts of the world, people have, have made use of this highly um, energy-rich drink um, that is honey, but indeed our, our primate ancestors do the same, uh, and sorry, our primate relatives, and thus extrapolating from extant species, presumably the, the ancestors that, um, that are common to us and our closest relatives might have used honey as well. 
And of course, that is the most energy rich nutrition that is to be had anywhere in nature. Brains are very energy hungry. They're our most costly organs. And of course, our relatively enlarged brains cost something. And so this theory goes that those animals, those of our ancestors who were best at honey hunting of locating beehives and finding tools to extract the honey um, without getting stung to death, might perhaps have had just a little bit of an edge over other competitors who were less good at finding this high-energy nutrition. And that in this sense, the capacity to harvest honey fueled the evolution of our large brains. Now, again, that is a theory, but it's a very beautiful one, and at least one that's plausible from all the evidence that we have. Yeah, it really is so interesting. And then as you as you remind us, and as I said, you know, then later on, it, it was the wax that gave us the candles that lit our learning into the darkness, you know, and, and our ceremonies and our rituals. And the uh, being a Greek person, um, you know, the art from Minoan art has those beautiful bees that those stylized bees that they had and the mysteries, the Eleusinian mysteries, which we also associate with the psychedelic now, but there were the mysteries were hosted by the Melissae, the, 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 the bee girls who guided the initiates in through this. So there was some presence of the bee even in this, this profound cultural ritual of the Greek people. And I'm sure that's, that's just true of, of many cultures. We even know about the psychoactive honey, supposedly, from Nepal, right? I don't know if you... Do, you, you I know you, you know about it, but do you know much about it? How I don't know much much about that honey, how psychoactive it is or what exactly people think is going on with it. Um, so this is from a, a species called Apis dorsata. It's a different species of honeybee. And the harvesting of this honey is remarkable on its own because they're not kept in hives. They're wild bees that are quite vicious. So they're, they're, they're the size of hornets and very aggressive. And they, the, the nests or the, the, the combs are like a like a steam engine sized wheel um, hanging from either very high branches in trees or overhanging cliffs. And so the honey hunters there regularly risk their lives to get to this honey. So with the cliffs, they sometimes climb down very flimsy ladders, holding onto the ladder with one hand and cutting bits of comb with the other. And so this is, it's just takes amazing courage, of course. And these people take, pride in not wearing any kind of protective suit. So it's there's, there's quite a remarkable spirit to it. And in some regions, it seems that there is a, a type of honey that's hallucinogenic. Um, not all the species honey is, has that effect. I've eaten some myself. Uh, it's been sent to me by friends from northern Thailand. Um, and that was perfectly normal. Um, non-psychoactive honey, but I think that the the idea that some versions of um, the honey that these um, Apis dorsata bees make is hallucinogenic is well documented. It's not just um, an, an urban myth, mm. but I haven't tried. <laughs> well, what, what we're talking here a little bit about um, about the brain, and maybe we could go in there. I mean, obviously, there is a lot of discussion about exactly the role the 
the brain plays in cognition and and how to think about it. We don't we haven't solved the so-called hard problem of how we get from a supposedly material brain to experience. But one of the things that it was just so beautiful, I I had often kind of had this idea in 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 my mind that that if with with such a, such a small um, physical brain that maybe there was a lot of of hyperconnectivity. And I did, but I, I hadn't really studied bee anatomy before. I, I mean, I love bees, and that's maybe I'm biased at why I loved your book so much. I think anybody would love this book. But here are some images. This that almost lung-like image there is actually a, 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 an incredibly variegated branched neuron, right? And there are two in in the the top. It's the right here. Let me see what I'm pointing out there, right? Um, and so part of the deal here is that we might try to dismiss a bee and their intelligence on the basis of, oh, what, that tiny little pin-sized brain. Um, this is a single neuron, which is, of course, a very special one that you talk about in the book, but that is a single, incredibly, um, it's just an incredible neural architecture for one neuron. And uh, you make this point that, uh, okay, yeah, it might be small, but there's so much interconnectivity, which makes for such vast possibilities for learning and experience that we just don't fully understand. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so you are quite right. Bee brains are very small. That that part is obvious. And they also have relatively low numbers of nerve cells, of neurons, when compared to the human brain. So we have about 86 billion. Um, a, a honeybee, bumblebee might have about 1 million. And just comparing these numbers, one might be misled to say, well, you've just got 1 million units um, that you can somehow vary up and down in, in activity. Maybe the computational capacity can't be all that much. But that view changes, as you say, once you actually take a look at the structure of these nerve cells and you find that each individual cell can have the, the structure of a fully grown oak tree, just very elegantly miniaturized. And of course, every one of these nerve cells makes or can make up to 10,000 connections with other nerve cells. And these connections, these synapses, each individual, one of them, of course, is at least technically plastic and subject to change by experience. And so the entire wiring diagram of this bee brain, while it's compact, it's a small and compact brain, but it's still outside the reach just so of neuroscientists to draw up the entire circuitry of the brain. I think my neuroscience colleagues are making great strides in that direction, and they certainly get there in honeybees or bumblebees before um, they get there with rat brains or, um, or let alone the human brain, just because bees are relatively more accessible. But we're not there yet. Despite all the sophisticated techniques we have, this biocomputer that is the bee brain is still, to some extent, out of reach of what neuroscientists can reconstruct in, in, in its entirety. Yeah. And of course, you're, you're raising even in that phrase a question that is an open question for people in working on cognitive science, and that is whether or not computation is an accurate way to think. I mean, it's, it's an accessible way because we have computers and we can imagine, 
But we invented the computer and then decided that it was a description of how thinking occurs, whereas nature didn't use that process necessarily, and there could be something else going on, especially as a relational process. I mean, one of the things that I, I love, I, I don't know if, you're, if you are open to, uh, say, inactive or extended views of cognition, but uh, Ezekiel de Palo, in one of his articles on inactive co cognition, put it so well. He said, you can examine a baby all you like, but you won't be able to determine by looking at that baby whether or not she's a twin, because twinness is relational. And so while we may mm -hmm. e examine a brain all we like, we won't necessarily understand what the mind of a bee is if mind is a relational, something relational that arises in and through relationality. Of course, that's very difficult to conceive of when we're so used to computational paradigms. But what you point out is that, and in your book you talk about this, that even if we have simplified computational models or neural network models that are nowhere near as complex as the bee, we find out that they work so well that the question we end up asking, I like how you put it, you reverse it, you say, well, instead of asking, you know, how could you possibly have very much intelligence in that little bee, you end up saying, how in the world, why would you have so much intelligence in such a tiny little being? It's actually the reverse of what your intuition might get you to ask, if that makes sense. Yeah, or, or indeed, why does anything need a brain as big as a bee, or let alone as big as us? Right. So um, a neuroscientist friend of mine has once commented that if you add up all the computational capacities that are known in humans, you still get something as, sw as small as a walnut. Um, so the mystery in humans as well as bees is, given how few neurons you often need to do what seems like really advanced things, face recognition, numerosity, counting abilities, and so on, often these things can be mediated with dozens or hundreds of neurons. Yeah. So from that end, indeed, it's a mystery why brains are so big as they are even, even in the bees. It, it sometimes makes me wonder, I know that um, V.S. Ramachandran has, has felt that there is more about the brain that is self-limiting and that actually he thinks probably most people are born with the potential to do far more incredible things than we could imagine, that really uh, we, we have the capacity to you know, play 50 games of chess at once in our minds. And for some reason, these abilities get compressed. And of course, he, he's, he's studied Daniel Temet and other, other people who have sort of exceptional capacities. And then there are cases where people might have an insult to the, to the physiology that unleashes a capacity they didn't have, like, say, musical capacities or something. So maybe there, there is just all this potential that we don't, we don't understand even how it works. That presents problems, I guess, for you, too, in terms of thinking um, and for instance, one of the things I was, I was somewhat surprised whenever I, uh, it, very early in the book, you have this interesting, sorry, everybody, just for those of you who can see this, there's this pause for those of you who are only listening is that I'm holding up the book. So if you want to go to YouTube, you can see some images. You should just get this book. But you can see a little image down there of the, of the flower, um, how it kind of looks if we just imagine the projected retinal image. But of course, We've got no idea what the bee's visual experience is like, because if someone were just an alien anatomist and took an eyeball out of a human, they might draw, they might draw two circles with uh, black dots in them, where they say, well, this, this being has its uh, visual system has a blind spot in it, so they walk around with these two black dots, apparently. <laughs> you know, and just, but they might not realize that we had binocular vision and that we totally make up for um, those blind spots so that we have this field of vision. And so 
it's so strange, isn't it, to try to figure out what the bees are experiencing because they they not only have um, a, a different structure, but they also have this kind of difference where the upper part is sensitive to polarized light, but but the bottom isn't. Can you can you talk about how weird maybe the bees' visual experience could be? It's so hard to imagine into it. Yeah, I mean the the difficulty is of course that at least certain parts of how bees or other animals see the world are accessible to experimentation. Others, the more subjective parts, um, are not. Can I just make a brief interruption? I think there are some street musicians outside. I don't um, hear them. If they don't bother you, they're not bothering me. <laughs> uh, they're not bothering me. So, no. um, so but um, if at some point you just want to say, okay, let's take a pause until this uh, no, interrupts. No, yeah, okay. So, first of all, what we, do, what we do know about bee vision is that the color spectrum that they see is very different. So, bees can see ultraviolet light, which we cannot so that's the part of the spectrum that tans our skin or burns it when we expose ourselves too long, but we can't see it. And so with that capacity, bees can see patterns in flowers that are entirely inaccessible to us. So many flowers that, let's say, look hom homogeneously yellow to us, for a bee have two colors because some parts are UV reflecting and others are not, but all of them might be yellow reflecting. And this is something that's accessible to experimentation. You can, of course, see, you can determine the extent to which bees can view such patterns that we cannot see. We can also, using such color discrimination experiments, find out that they're not very good at dis discriminating various shades of red, which we are better at. And that's because their entire visual spectrum is shifted to shorter wavelengths into the ultraviolet, but to some extent out of the long wavelength end of the spectrum, the red. Likewise, bees are sensitive to um, the polarization of light, as you mentioned, that is the direction in which light swings. And the if you examine with sort of um, various physical um, light meters, the, the, the skylight dome, then you find that light is polarized differently in different parts of the sky, but in a pattern that correlates with the current position of the sun. But this degree of polarization to our eyes, again, is wholly inaccessible. So in an experiment, we can prove that bees can reconstruct the position of the sun from using polarized light. And they can do that without actually seeing the sun. The sun can be hidden behind the horizon or behind clouds and so on. But they can use the sun as a compass cue by reconstructing where the sun currently is from using polarized light. So we can demonstrate that bees do that. And of course, we can scramble the degree of polarized light from the sky dome so bees have no longer access to it, in which case they're then suddenly disoriented. But we can't, of course, demonstrate how the bee actually sees this kind of light mm. or ultraviolet light any more than I can actually look into your head and 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 uh, determine with some certainty whether you see red or purple the same way um, uh, as I do. Mm -hmm. yeah. What we can determine experimentally is that, yes, you and I see red, 
we um, we we will both probably not see ultraviolet light. That we can, of course, diagnose with with um, certainty. But how it actually appears from inside our own cockpit um, to us is a private matter. Yeah. Well, there's something there that we might share. There's a book that um, is is quite justly revered here uh, on Turtle Island, aka North America. Have you ever heard of this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, by Robin Wall Kimmer? I have not. No, it's. Um, I, I really recommend it. Uh, she is a botanist, but she's also uh, an indigenous person, and so you know she went through the university system here, but she also has some some connection to her indigenous uh, lineage. When she went to uh, study botany, and she went to declare her major, her her the academic advisor, uh, where there's you know still like a little bit of undercurrent of racism. You know, what's the little Indian girl doing here? Um, he asked her why she wanted to major in botany, and she and she said, "Well, I really want to know why asters and goldenrod look so good together. Why do they look so beautiful together?" And he said, "That is not a scientific question." And of course, there's a way in which she, you know, she later says, "Well, he was wrong," and her view is that that of course we must share something about visual experience with bees, and in fact, that's one of the questions that you go into. So this book is it, it's just a beautiful book for lots of reasons, but um, because she's really trying to bridge uh, the the dominant culture scientific tradition with with what we could refer to, I think, with with good reason as indigenous science. And um, and to say that there's something very complementary about them, but in your book you talk a, a little bit about how we know which came first, so to speak, the chicken or the egg, and this question of what. So you would have a way to tell the story about why asters and goldenrod look so good together, and it in, in a way has to do with how flowers evolved. Could you could you tell that story a little bit? Yeah. So I mean, it's quite clear that the peculiarities of vision that we've just discussed, including um, ultraviolet vision, polarization vision, are not unique to the bees. And so they are shared by all other insects that have ever been tested. Um, so um, let's say uh, not just butterflies, other flower-visiting insects, but also leaf-eating beetles um, carrion-eating beetles and so on have ultraviolet receptors, and they have um, they have polarization vision. And so, if, for example, you ask the question of what was there first, ultraviolet patterns in flowers or ultraviolet vision, the answer quite clearly is that the visual system that bees have is shared by all their relatives across the insects, and so that must have been there earlier. And so it was the flowers that adapted to the color vision of bees, not so much the other way around. Yeah. And in that sense, you imagine that the, um, at least the, the, the world where it's um, blessed with vegetation would have been pretty much entirely green before animal pollinators came around to assist with um, transporting pollen. And so in that sense, bees really painted the world with, with these colors that flowers just delivered or plants just generated to, to cater to the insect vectors that um, do their dirty business for them. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful image of the bees sort of conjuring color into existence in our world by 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 getting the flowers to call to them. It, it, it's a it's as if you know the circuit as when Gregory Bateson talks about the evolutionary circuit, he talks it really about it in, in a transdermal way. And so it's not that there's an evolution of bee. Ultimately, it's this romance of bee and flower over millions of years that helps to create the world that we have. That's again relational, something that's relational. Um, Indeed. Going. Um, oh no! Please go ahead. Yes, I was going to ask another question, but please, yes, tell me. Well, just to just to continue this story further on. Of course, much later, plants also evolved fruits. Yes. Which again, basically, capitalized on pigments that were already there and were used for flowers, and the fruits are, of course, in the majority for um, seed dispersers, which could either be birds or. Um, primates such as us, but our vast majority of um, mammal relatives actually are uh, are lacking a red receptor. So they're not actually very good at detecting red, yellow, orange fruit. And the theory why we humans have the color vision that we do is because plants in turn used these pigments to generate fruits. And they, of course, wanted, the plants wanted to recruit animals that um, disperse the seeds. And so they, um, in in turn, facilitated the evolution of the color vision that we now have, which mm. includes a red receptor that is not actually shared by many other mammals. Mm. So this is specific to the frugivorous mammals that we are and, and our closest relatives in among the primates. Yeah. And maybe some birds um, are, are also, are, I mean, what maybe I, I was wondering if maybe, say, um, hummingbirds or certain other kinds of, um, or I, I don't know how things look to, um, I, I didn't really think of, say, bats or something, but maybe hummingbirds, do, do we know if they can see red? Yes, they uh, can. Yeah. Uh, so birds, at least some birds have a spectrum that ranges across the um, entire range from ultraviolet to red. So they're broader in their visual range than both bees and humans. And they have 4C, some of yes, them. Of Excuse me? Uh, they have 4, 4C uh, rather than 3C vision uh, for... Exactly. Uh, yeah. so they, they have four different types of cones. And um, so their color vision is even richer than than either bees or or humans. Yeah. And indeed, of course, many plants deliver fruits that are whose pigmentation caters to to bird seed dispersers. Yeah, yeah, and that's a beautiful thing to imagine. I mean, I know that it wasn't that long ago that that there had to be this reset in bird identification, where there was this story that oh, there's no there's no visual difference really between males and females, and then we realized, well, wait, but if they see an ultraviolet, it might be strikingly different to them. So it might be so obvious. Whereas for us, we think, oh yeah, the male and female basically look the same, but for them, it might be very different. But it's also I love how what this story says and what Robin Wall Kimmer is getting at in her book is that when we appreciate the world. We know we're not alone in the appreciation. Some other beings out there, in one way or another, the bees are appreciating asters and goldenrod in their way as we are. And maybe even, of course, maybe more so because for them, it's, that, is, that is so important to them. Um, but but this, just the sense that when we appreciate nature, we know that other beings might. Jane Goodall talked about uh, two chimpanzees climbing up on, on the top of a hill and just sitting and watching a sunset. 
and just just that but that was it they just sat there watched that sunset and then left and and it's uh, wonderful how much that appreciation is needed for us and one of the things that i like about the story is you've got these two kind of little tragic tales about i mean there's a way in which i do think it's appropriate to say that we lost a, a, the, the fullness of maybe the sense of the sacred in the world that we might have had or that indigenous indigenous communities to this day might have because although indigenous peoples make up only 5% of the global population, about 80% of the biodiversity hotspots, you know, that it's under their care still. And so mm -hmm. you tell the stories of Kenyon and uh, Hammer, uh, Frederick Kenyon and Martin Hammer, who, who made really major discoveries about bees, but couldn't get that into some kind of stable life, you know, where their, their research could be respected and, and, and their their lives kind of ended in tragedy. And so here you have this almost like in the sense that people still didn't care, you know. <laughs> and and if you if you love this, you think, wow, this is so interesting. But how it's just also to me a part of why it's so important to read this book is to recover that sense of wonder and a sense of the sacredness of life and the interwovenness of life. Yeah, I agree with that. And and of course it's um it's often difficult for people with especially visionary ideas um, to be heard and to be taken seriously. And of course, that can in many cases take a, a, a toll on mental health. And so in the case of Kenyon, that ultimately, um, so I should say, um, explain a bit about why these people are in, in the book. So Kenyon was the first person to explore the bee brain in depth. Um, he was active late in the 19th century, and here's a beautiful map of several identified types of um, neurons. And these drawings, in turn, inspired one of the founding fathers of neuroscience, Ramoni Cajal, um, across um, the Atlantic Ocean. Kenyon was active in the United States, and he was basically one of the early pioneers not in bee neuroscience, but in in identifying nerve cells altogether in any organism. But yes, so he um, had difficulty um, securing a, a permanent job in spite of his visionary um, research and in the end ended up in, in an asylum without any kind of opportunity for rehabilitating himself ever and died there decades later. And... A century later, Martin Hammer was the first to um, identify a single nerve cell that in the honeybee basically constitutes, here it is, Martin Hammer's VUMX um, neuron that actually seems to constitute the um, reward pathway in the bee's brain. So one function for a single cell an extremely finely branched neuron that if you stimulate it seems to um, indicate to the bee oh, I've just tasted something sweet and in that sense can actually induce a false memory of um, a certain odor for example having been rewarding even if the reward was actually just simulated by stimulating that particular cell and like Kenyon I guess Martin Hammer had difficulty convincing the world of his visionary discoveries to such an extent that anyone would have given him a, a permanent job. And uh, this took quite 
tragic toll on his private life. Um, so um, in the end, he ended up committing suicide. And so many, I guess, people in the creative parts of the world, um, whether that's being in the science or the arts, are by default perhaps more more sensitive creatures. And if on top of that they're met with um, this kind of reluctance of the wider world to accept their findings or ideas and uh, are, at the, as a result of that, getting into financial hardship and, and additional troubles in their relationship, that is difficult. And in some cases, yes, it has resulted in terrible tragedies. Yeah, and our love of bees, in a way, it might be getting us to go in a not necessarily helpful direction, because one of the things that you point out is that people people naturally, there is, there's something in our soul. Again, it might be this symbolic, if, you, if you're open to Jung's ideas, there's something archetypal about bees, and they, they might have this kind of spiritual keystone status. And so then people decide they're going to get into beekeeping and may not fully understand that this is not necessarily the best way to help the world, that, that rewilding the world might be better. And as you point out in your book, the trouble is if you've got 40,000 bees on your property, uh, domesticated bees in hives, you're taking food away from 40,000 bees who would naturally live in that place. And you might be making it much more difficult for them. Can you say a little something about that? And you know, how how can we serve this for those people who feel drawn to them? What's the what's the better way to serve them? Yeah. So I mean, the the fact that bees are in trouble is, of course, now commonly accepted. It's all, all over the media, and we know that this is a problem because we need bees to pollinate our crops and wildflowers and so on. But the question is, which bees? And the uh, a common misunderstanding is that, of course, bees are honeybees, that um, the one species of bees that people perceive as being in trouble is the one that's kept in hives, that is domesticated, and is actually well looked after by beekeepers throughout the world. And so the honeybee itself is is not threatened by extinction anywhere on the globe. It's to some extent sometimes threatened by bad beekeeping practices, but that's a different matter. It's a that's a kind of agricultural problem in the same way as if your battery chickens um, die from some sort of virus infection, then that's not an ecological disaster. It's sad for the farmer, of course, and um, they might have to look into how to improve the welfare of their chickens but it has nothing to do with saving nature or saving wildlife. And so the well-intentioned efforts of companies, banks to put um, beehives on their roofs in cities or celebrities to plant 200 beehives onto their ranch are actually very counterproductive because while they're doing nothing uh, valuable for the honeybee, the honeybee is already doing well, they take away already scarce food sources from all the, the wild bees that are out there and that are actually struggling because of um, habitat loss, because of um, industrialized agriculture that coats all the vegetation with a thick layer of multiple pesticides and so on. It's these bees that struggle finding the right kind of food. And if you put more honeybees out there, there'll be less of that. 
And so it's, while I think beekeeping, if you have a, a hive or two in your backyard, is a beautiful hobby and very insightful, um, but keeping lots and lots of beehives is not a valuable contribution to wildlife. Yeah, and you recommend, and, and I, I'll tell everybody here, you might want to listen to the uh, dialogue with uh, Doug Tallamy, who uh, he's a, an American biologist who uh, wrote a book about, uh, he, it's called Nature's Last Hope. And the idea is that most of the land in the U.S. is privately owned. And so if everybody would give half, just half of their lawns, half of their, their land back to rewilding, then you could bring those bees. You could you could you know have wildflowers. You could have things that the wild pollinators need, and that would be a good way to help to to honor the bees by, by by making sure the wild ones have enough. And then, sure, if you have a little hive, as you mentioned, but you also you talk about that having wildflowers and thinking about what would be good for the pollinators because we often do things from this kind of narrow sense of human aesthetics, but we could learn to have a broader sense of what's beautiful. And say, well, hey, I can appreciate the beauty that bees appreciate too, as as uh, as Robin Wall Kimmer pointed out. I wanted to swing to something else. Um, just as as we might be coming to a close here, there's two things. So one is, I love that you talk about brain waves in bees because we all we know there's a kind of you know neuroscience thing that's in here, right? I mean, it's this is our, the gold standard for epistemology in this culture is science, and that's why. If if we had put a brain scan up, or we, well, we did sort of put a brain scan. When we put that brain scan up, a brain scan, everything we said now sounds more convincing. And so, you, I mean, there's been studies on this. You write two articles, stick an image of a brain scan in one that might have nothing to do with what's in the article, and people find the article more convincing. So we're this attuned to it. And and you pointed out something that was surprising to me, that they've they've measured brain waves in bees, and you can comment on that or not. I encourage people to read the book. But I, I also just like, want, I want to ask this basic question of, you list many things, experiments, um, images about the neural structure, computational analogs, all the different evidence. What do you feel is one or two of the most compelling findings that that you really felt like, look, I know this maybe can't stand on its own, but but this one really says something. Is there one that you that you pick as a favorite, or do you mean one observation that says something about bees' capacity to think and to feel and that, to be conscious? Yeah, that really makes you feel like I'm. We're dealing with sentience. I'm not dealing with a what, but a who in some way or another. And it might be a very different kind of who, but no, there's a mind, there's a real sentience here. Yeah. So, um, I think we've known for, for decades, of course, that bees can learn. Uh, they can learn flower um, colors and shapes. They can learn the location of their hives. That's essential, of course, to navigate all the way back. But for much of my early career, that was supposed to be all there is. So people still thought of bees as largely pre-programmed um, animals that, in addition to hardwired routines for building comb and defending their hives and so on, have, are pre-programmed to learn some things, but other than learning the things that, that did, they need in their daily lives, such as 
flower colors and scents and and um, landmarks and so on, there was not supposed to be any thinking going on or any, let alone any feeling capacity. And I spent much of my career looking into various aspects of intelligence that um, initially included things like uh, counting and um, and recognition of, of um, human faces, visual concept learning and so on. But to some extent, many of these things could still be explained with relatively simple associative learning. But we then in relatively more recent years did a number of experiments that got me thinking about the, the possibility of sentience. So we were interested in one test, for example, about 15 years ago, whether bees can learn about predation threat. And so we tested bees confronted with so-called crab spiders. These are sit-and-wait predators that lurk on flowers and can be quite cryptic because they actually adapt to the color of the flower on which they sit. And we took this into the laboratory, basically building what we called robotic crab spiders that could briefly capture a bee between two sponge pads and then release it without any kind of injury, um, but simulate a kind of predation attack. And it turned out that bees could learn to avoid these spiders quite well, perhaps unsurprisingly. But the remarkable thing was that their whole demeanor changed. Um, they would subsequently cautiously inspect every flower by scanning it very carefully before deciding whether to land or not. And moreover, they displayed a lot of false alarms. That is, they scanned a perfectly safe flower and then rejected it as if they'd seen a ghost. And this to us, and, and I'm deliberately anthropomorphizing here, but it looked a bit like a post-traumatic stress disorder where you're so hypersensitized that you're actually responding to a threat that you're just conjuring up from, from memory that isn't actually currently there. And that wasn't yet a formal diagnosis of, of an emotion-like state. It just pointed in that direction. And I should—I I just want to clarify for people. I—I'm I, not—I'm I, hesitant to interrupt you because you're on a thread. But I just want to say you can see some film footage of this online, and I encourage you to listen to some other talks from Lars. You can imagine because this is—it's not just—it it is a thing that goes boom <laughs> and it closes. Now it doesn't physically hurt the bee, but you could imagine that if you were flying along, minding your own business, and suddenly you were slammed close in darkness and stillness, this could be. Really traumatizing. You could you could really be startled by this in a way that would make you say, "I don't want that happening again." So it, it's 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 non physically harming, as you point out, but it can't. It could be psychologically or somehow, if there's a sentience there, it could be quite a shock to that sentience that this event happened. Mm -hmm. Yet at the time when when we did these experiments fifteen years ago, um, we hadn't thought of this possibility, nor had anyone else. And people were initially also very skeptic when I presented these findings at conferences. They were not skeptic about the, the, the learning, but about the sort of more mental interpretation. People had some reservations. But we later did more and more experiments, including deliberately asking whether bees might have emotion-like states by um, using using basically versions of the proverbial glass that is either half full or half empty, where in the human case, you have an ambiguous stimulus that's exactly in the middle. 
your glass filled 50% with liquid and you ask people, well, does this look like a good thing to you? And the optimist will say, hey, there's a lot in there and be quite pleased with it, where the pessimist looks at the same stimulus because oh, it's almost all gone and be all sad about it. And so various versions of these kinds of, this kind of proverbial um, paradigm have been adapted for domestic animals, sheep, goats, dogs, to ask, are they kept in conditions that um, are conducive to their well-being or not, as the case may be? And we used a version of this for, for bees, where we trained them to associate certain flower colors with rewards and others with no rewards. So they knew one color is good, one is not. And then we gave them a flower color in between that they hadn't seen before. And we asked them, well, hey, does this now look, that's our glass 50% filled. We asked, does this look, look good or, or not so good to you? And it turned out that the response to this ambiguous stimulus depends on what happened to the bee just before the experiment. If they'd been given a little surprise reward where they didn't expect it, they were much more excited about this novel ambiguous stimulus and judged it as more likely something good than they otherwise would. So there is a case where by the same criteria that are used for domestic animals, mammals included, um, there is an emotion-like positive state in, in bees. Hmm. More recently, we also did an experiment where bees seem to enjoy a play-like behavior where they actually rolled balls all over the place, even though these balls were not associated with any appetitive reward. They actually went out of their way again and again to manipulate these balls, seemingly enjoying the activity in itself, even though it didn't come with any any other reward. That, well, the kind of reward that usually you expect for bees to be fulfilling, and that's, that's a sugar reward. Yeah, because when you see this in, in uh, we've all seen dogs playing with soccer balls or horses playing with these giant balls. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but but people will sometimes give these really big yoga balls that you would you could stand on and the horses play with them. It's clear that they're having fun to us and we don't feel badly. We don't feel like, oh, we're just projecting. We, we get the sense the horse is having a good time. And with a bee, it's almost like a big surprise for us because we've, we've cut them out a little bit or we, we're not able to fully accept the sentience that could be there. And this comes with an ethical import, as you as you point out. It's it's a question of how we do research, where, you know, uh, our, 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 and, and how we live with these beings, uh, how we treat honeybees. And because even if, as you say, they're, they're not suffering the threat of extinction, when uh, we have all these almond products and when honeybees are sent out to pollinate a non-organic almond orchard, you pretty much know you're, going to, you're, you're sending half of them off to be killed because they're just not going to survive the exposures. And so this really, really brings, again, that question of can we have a sense of sacredness or as um, uh, Albert Schweitzer put it, reverence for life, to really sense that in every living being you have this this feeling that there's a will to live and can you have reverence for that? Brief interruption, cut here. Yeah. <laughs> Big cut. <laughs> All right, cut again. You're quite right. So there are ethical implications of this kind of work, not just for bees, but also for for other insects, of course, because if indeed 
they are sentient beings, then that I think by default means that we have to take their welfare seriously. And the argument that bees need to be protected because we need them, um, I mean, that's been labored enough, but that's an argument of utility. It's because we, we, we need to keep them as opposed to all these annoying other insects um, because they do something useful for us. But that might be a useful and valid argument, but of course the the other argument that you've just um, brought up is that they are worth um, that their welfare is worth considering because they might actually capable of feeling, um, and that includes the capacity to enjoy things, but also to to suffer. And of course, it's one thing again if you have a um, a carefully attended beehive in your backyard um, and another if you look at the practices of migratory beekeeping where where thousands of beehives are shipped all across the continent to tiny parts of the country because of, there's currently some um, crop in bloom as you said, mentioned the, the California almond bloom where where over two-thirds of all North American bees are shipped into a tiny part of the country for two to three weeks, then again loaded onto trucks and shipped back to a different pollination location. Um, and people have observed that, of course, lots of their bees die. You might be familiar with this phenomenon of colony collapse disorder, which is largely limited to such beekeeping practices where the the hives are it's not just the transport but also the um hives are put together basically as if um a, a bee was an interchangeable commodity like like a molecule or something so they they dump together um combs from multiple different bee colonies um just to have the right number of individuals in each box basically and this is done by machines before they're loaded onto trucks and shipped 5,000 miles um, and during which time they're, of course, thoroughly vibrated and uh, can't fly out to defecate and so on. These experiences are bound to be tremendously stressful and it's no wonder that um, often the observation is that a lot, lots of hives are, are lost, not just because of diseases, but also of um, quite likely simple psychological stress. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really profound when we think about it, because here we are, we've just gotten the official word that this is the hottest year in human historical record keeping, but possibly 125,000 years, according to some of the scientific data we have, hottest year in over 100,000 years. And we're, we still seem to be asking the question of how we humans are going to get on, and not really asking how many of our other non-human kin can we save? Because a lot of the questions about climate shift, they aren't really asking about the importance of saving these species. Of course, plenty of people do. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that a lot of questions restricted to carbon capture, carbon emissions, and questions of human survival, they kind of really, especially people who are resistant to investing in stopping the, the shift that we're undergoing right now, those people seem to not even think of whether or not that means a species are going to go extinct. And there's, there's this two levels, right? We might need those kin for the services they provide, but they're also our kin. 
There also some, there's something important about them where we should be concerned about their welfare. And part of, I guess, how you get to that is, is there's the wisdom traditions teach us about the non-duality of wisdom and love, that understanding and love go together. And so I can imagine that as you've come to understand these beings, you, you've really gotten um, more and more to uh, appreciate them, let's say, if not love them. And so I want to I ask if you have any other final thoughts, but I want, again, to encourage people, this is a great way to understand the world we live in. And this is a great being to study and learn about. And this is a great book. It really is. And there's so many experiments that we didn't talk about, partly because I know you've talked about them in other places. If people want to watch that, they can. Really cool experiments that, that Lars uh, discusses, including counting, which I'm glad you mentioned that. I was impressed. I think the bees are counting somehow. Is there anything else, though, you'd like to say as a final thought? Uh, anything? No, I think just to... Um sum up that I think we humans, as you say, are thinking and feeling and enjoying and suffering beings in a world of other thinking and feeling and enjoying and suffering beings. And I think as different as these other creatures' minds might be and the priorities that matter for them, I think this view commands some respect respect for the natural world around us and an obligation to to conserve it. And not just because we need certain species for for the most obvious purposes, but because we are connected with all of these other species, and we 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 need to preserve that connection. Yeah, and and the astonishing thing about the bee is how many researchers have have had this consistent kind of sense of impressiveness. You know, going back, you you, you start with some of the early people in Europe who just kept saying, wow, this is really amazing, this little being. And so uh, thank you so much for your work in dedication to, to the bee and for this wonderful book. It's a really great book to read. And thanks for joining us here, Lars. Well, thank you very much for your, your kind words and, and your interest. Yeah, absolutely. And all of you, thank you for joining us. If you have questions, reflections about bees or mind in general, the ecology of mind we're embedded in, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Maybe we'll have some other bee experts as well. In the meantime, my friends, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.